Hello, my name is Michael Albert, and I am the host of the podcast titled Revolution Z. This is our 168th consecutive episode, the first in yet another new sequence. Back in October of 2021, I and Yanis Varoufakis, European internationalist, Greek parliamentarian, novelist, and much more, began what we intended to be an extended and rather unusual exchange about post-capitalism. We agreed each entry would be 500 words. I would provide the first, Yanis would reply, then me, then him, and so on, in an open-ended flow that we both anticipated would go on for many, many more entries. Meta, a Greek internationalist think tank of post-capitalism, and Zenet would simultaneously publish the entries, each as they appeared, with hopes that the whole thing, once ended, might be combined and make a nice graphic book as well. As we today undertake this episode of Revolution Z, Yanis and I have exchanged, and Meta and Znet, and now also the site called Real Utopia at realutopia.org, have published seven entries in the exchange. And that brings us to this episode of Revolution Z, that is titled Yanis Michael, Post-Capitalist Exploration 1-4, to wherein I will present the first four entries of the exchange, plus interject some comments and thoughts I have spontaneously as I read the material into the microphone on my desk. And then later, I'll do this same thing for the next four and the next four. So here goes. The first entry at the end of October, nearly four months ago, was by me and was entitled Participatory Post-Capitalist Vision. And I already interject, my title was not exactly poetic. I wish I'd kicked off with a better one. At any rate, the first entry went like this. For me, the defining institutions of capitalism are private ownership of productive assets, authoritarian control of workplaces, production for profit, a corporate division of labor, wherein empowered employees dominate disempowered employees, remuneration for property, power, and or output, and allocation by markets and or central planning. To my eyes, these capitalist institutions produce obscene inequity, vile antisociality, and soul-crushing indignity. They impose stupefying, empathy-destroying, democracy-defiling, and world-ravaging economic conditions. And here I interject, as I read it, it is still not maximally poetic, but I think perhaps it's not too bad. At any rate, the entry continued. To my mind, this poses a paramount question. What new post-capitalist economic features are essential to ensure that our future selves will freely determine the details of their future lives with dignity, equity, and social solidarity? Here are the defining features participatory economics proposes. 1. A new conception of the natural and built workplaces, tools, and resources that we use to produce society's goods and services. We call this a productive commons, and we propose it to replace private ownership of productive assets. 2. Workers and consumers workplace and neighborhood councils, and industry and regional federations of councils, that we use to convey to all a say over economic decisions proportional to the extent those decisions affect them. We call this council self-management, and we propose it to replace authoritarian control of production and consumption. 3. Jobs composed of tasks that together provide each worker a manageable mix of responsibilities which convey, by their daily accomplishment, average empowerment effects. 
We call this mixed balance job complexes and we propose it to replace a corporate division of labor that elevates an empowered coordinator class above a disempowered working class. Four, equitable remuneration for how long, how hard, and the onerousness of the conditions under which we do socially valued work. We call this equitable remuneration and we propose it to replace remuneration for property, power, and or output. And finally, decentralized, cooperative, self-managed negotiation of production and consumption in light of personal, social, and environmental costs and benefits. We call this participatory planning, and we propose it to replace markets and or central planning. And I interject now, well, that's what I offered for economic vision. Obviously, a mouthful in a small space. A bit succinct, therefore, but clear, I hope. Not done, however, the first entry in our exchange continued. Advocates, myself included, claim that these five institutional aims, which we of course expect to see refined by future experience and augmented by diverse contextual policies and features that emerge from future practice, can together establish a classless, self-managing, sustainable, and even aesthetic post-capitalist economy that serves the fulfillment and development of all people. And I have to interject. My feeling was, hey, who wouldn't want that? In any case, the first entry finished. Some advocates call this participatory economics. Some call it participatory socialism. But all its advocates, myself included, claim that these five proposed defining institutions can together serve as a flexible, visionary scaffold we can refine and build on to help us traverse the road to winning a post-capitalist economic vision. More, we claim that such a participatory vision can inspire hope and sustain commitment. It can provide orientation to help us plant the seeds of the future in the present, to help us win immediate gains in non-reformist ways, and to help us traverse a trajectory of changes that avoids winding up other than where we wish to arrive. So that was my first entry, and about a month later, from amidst his incredibly hectic and jammed calendar, in response, Yanis provided his reply, the second series entry. It was titled, Do We Really Want Negotiations to Replace Markets and Hierarchies? It began. At the very heart of a heartless and distinctly irrational capitalist world lies the curious idea that the crushing majority who work in the corporations do not own them, while the minuscule minority who own them can very easily not even know where they are located, let alone work in them. This gross asymmetry is the source of exorbitant power in the hands of the few to wreck the lives of the many, as well as of the planet. And it is not just a matter of unfairness. It is more a matter of wholesale alienation, as even the capitalists are condemned to live like sad bastards resembling guinea pigs running faster and faster on a treadmill going nowhere. I interject here that I have pretty much the same reaction now reading this aloud to you as I had in December, receiving it in my email and reading it to myself. That is, uh-oh, this guy can write. Now I have to worry about my 500 words not only delivering worthy substance, hard enough, but also being more literate than I typically manage. At any rate, Yanis continued his first entry. So it is a great relief that, here, I did not have to argue about the need to terminate capitalism. 
that Michael and I are embarking from a common belief that capitalism must end in order to debate the type of feasible post-capitalism we want. Michael traces the source of illiberty, inequality, and inefficiency to the private ownership of productive means, which lies behind the elevation of profit to the only motive that begets the soul-crushing division of labor within a company as well as within society at large. Spot on. He is also right to propose a productive commons and to point to the importance of a decentralized system of decision-making, extending beyond the workplace to the community, the neighborhood, etc. Lastly, I, Yanis that is, agree wholeheartedly with the principle of participatory planning as a replacement of the power of bosses, capitalists, or any type of coordinator class, to decide who does what to whom, to quote Lenin's famous words. I interject here, still admiring Ennis's turns of phrase, and happy at his kind words, that at this point in reading his entry, I thought we seemed to have a lot of agreement. Productive commons, participatory planning, no capitalist and no coordinator class, what will we debate? But Yanis didn't leave me hanging. He continued, But here begin our differences. Michael employs two words that ring alarm bells in my head. Equitable, which he links to the remuneration of work, especially of ugly or dirty tasks, and negotiation, which he proposes as the basis for consumers and producers to decide together what must be produced and in what quality quantity. My alarm is due to a deep conviction that both words are wolves in sheep's clothing, hiding the prospect of new forms of domination and oppression. I interject. I admit, on reading this, I was taken a bit aback. Was I, however inadvertently, peddling problems? Yanis continued, Take equitable. Who decides what is fair to pay you to go down the sewers to maintain them? I suppose the answer is the collective. Does the collective have the right to specify that you must go down the sewers for that wage without your consent? I hope not, but if your consent is required, then the wage setting is not much different to a market mechanism, where the collective is your employer. I interject. Okay, I felt some relief. Beneath my clothing, no wolf so far. And Yanis went on. Take negotiation. This implies consensus, which implies huge social pressure on a dissident to acquiesce to the majority's view. For instance, to their rejection of a weird but potentially wonderful idea that the majority cannot wrap its mind around. Personally speaking, I find suffocating the prospect of having to reach via negotiation a common understanding of what I must do and of what an equitable reward is for me to do it. And Yanis concluded, Before I suggest an alternative to negotiations, I felt the need to express early on this feeling of suffocation, and to ask our readers, am I alone in feeling that authentic freedom requires not just the end of capitalism, but also a degree of autonomy from the collective? I responded a little later with my second 500 words, the third entry in the series, titled, Equitable Negotiated Classless Self-Management. It started. Yanis, you say our differences begin beyond our both rejecting capitalism, advocating a productive commons, favoring participation in planning, and seeking to replace the coordinator class. But do we agree that to end coordinator class rule, we need to replace the corporate division of labor with jobs balanced for empowerment? Do we agree that we should all decide our lives up to where our choices impinge on others, but from there on, others should have their self-managing say as well? 
You express alarm that I use the words equitable and negotiation. You worry that these words may hide new forms of domination. But equitable means we receive income for how long, how hard, and the onerousness of the conditions under which we do socially useful work. Why would that alarm you? The only thing equitable remuneration has in common with market remuneration is that in each case you get an income. But with markets, you get what you have the bargaining power to take. With equitable remuneration, you get what you and your fellow workers decide accords with your duration, intensity, and onerousness of socially valued work. And regarding negotiation, I assume you agree that any economy will and should involve people acting jointly with other people. Doesn't it follow that in worthy post-capitalism, a worker won't just do or get whatever they alone choose? Call what they do together exploration, conversation, or negotiation. What's the alternative? One person or a small class decides? Competition decides? You don't want people telling you what to do. Okay, but people telling you what to do seems a strange way to characterize decisions that you participate in. In any event, do you think there could or should be a society where each person would decide their own remuneration, their own consumption, and their own work? with no concern for others? You say you find suffocating, quote, the prospect of having to reach via negotiation a common understanding of what you must do and of what an equitable reward is for you to do it. In participatory economics, no one tells you what you must do, and you are part of who decides what is an equitable reward. You are a participant in society, not atomistically aloof from it. You have a job, Suppose your workers' council, of which you are a full member, decides when the workday starts. It sets council agendas, it determines the composition of balanced job, and it decides how to apportion income among its workers. Assume mutually agreed, sensible deliberation, plus self-managed decision-making procedures. Would that be suffocating? To achieve, quote, a degree of autonomy from the collective, Participatory economics makes diversity a prime value and emphasizes the need to respect and even preserve minority positions. But shouldn't post-capitalist division of labor, decision-making, remuneration, and allocation deliver goods and services, but also deliver solidarity, diversity, equity, self-management, and sustainability? We haven't yet explored how all that can happen, but can we agree that it needs to happen? Yanis responded with his second and the fourth overall 500-word entry in late December. It was titled, Flat Management, Democratic Planning, and a Basic Income. It began, Michael, glad that we are proceeding slowly, refusing to take for granted vague terms like equitable and just, terms within which all manners of oppressions and irrationalities can take refuge. Before proceeding, and in the interests of full disclosure, let me state it for the record that, from a young age and to this day, I have signed up to Karl Marx's dismissal of equity as a bourgeois notion, as well as to his antipathy to defining freedom as the right to make free choices as long as they do not impinge on others. I interject. As I read this, I thought, uh-oh, is he saying equity as I define it is bourgeois? And Yanis continued, so when you ask me whether we agree, quote, that we should all decide our lives up to where choices impinge on others, but from there on, others should have their self-managing say as well, my response is, no, we certainly don't agree. Interdependence is a given in any social network. 
Thus, according to your definition of freedom, every Tom and Dick has the right to scream that Harriet's choices somehow impinge on theirs. Who will adjudicate then? Tom and Dick? Merely because they are the majority? Or any majority for that matter? That is unacceptable. I interject. Of course that would be unacceptable. But it is also not what I tried to say. And as I read this, I thought, I hope it is a communication problem that we can quickly clarify. Yanis went on. You ask me why I'm alarmed by your definition of equitable. Quote, equitable means we receive income for how long, how hard, and the onerousness of the conditions under which we do socially useful work. The answer is because I shudder to imagine who will decide what constitutes socially useful work. What happens if Harriet wants desperately to work on some new project that Tom and Dick consider socially useless? Or who gets to quantify how hard or onerous a particular job is? The majority again? Just writing these words makes my throat choke with angst. I interject. As I read it, Yanis was rightly wondering what's beyond the 500 words, which I thought was fair enough. But he was also suggesting what might be beyond in a way that certainly had nothing to do with my views. Yanis continued. You ask, quote, do we agree that to end coordinator class rule, we need to replace the corporate division of labor with jobs balanced for empowerment? Sure, we agree. But who gets to decide the job balance necessary for Harriet's empowerment? My answer is, that's Yanis's answer, Harriet, no one else, not Tom and Dick. No worker council should tell Harriet what is good for her to do, let alone decide on her behalf. Sure, they can chat about it in the assembly, on the company's intranet, via all sorts of teleconferences, etc. But unless Harriet gets to decide what Harriet does, it ain't self-management. I interject that in reaction to reading the above, I admit I felt quite concerned. I wondered, is what we have here a communication problem, as I had thought, or is it deeper? Yanis continued, Naturally, the question then becomes, how do things that need to get done get done? I have concrete ideas on how to answer this all-important question. But in the spirit of taking this conversation slowly, I shall begin by setting down five basic principles that enterprises should adhere to. 1. Authentic self-management. Participants, that is, worker co-owners, must be free to join at will or to quit work teams within the enterprise and to pursue project without anyone's permission. I interject. I wondered, as I read this, can Yanis really mean precisely what he seems to me to be saying? Yanis continued, Democratic hiring and firing. A democratic process must determine who is brought into the enterprise, but also who is fired. Note well, the right of the collective to dismiss a participant as a necessary counterbalance of authentic self-determination. Next, a basic income for all. Without an adequate basic income to fire a participant is to jeopardize her capacity to live. This would vest too much power in the hands of the majority within the enterprise, while at once making it harder to fire someone that deserves to be fired. Democratic resource allocation. The collective decides how much the basic salary is, how much to spend on infrastructure, including R&D, the enterprise's multi-year plan, and lastly, how much to set aside for annual bonuses to be distributed according to a democratically agreed process. And Yanis ended. Your thoughts. 
Well, I presented my reactions in my third entry, which was our arrangement. It's the fifth in the whole exchange, and the fifth, I hope, through eighth, will be material for another podcast episode sometime down the road. At this point in our exchange, I admit I was concerned that our 500-word limit might be making mutual comprehension very difficult. On the other hand, a little confusion and turmoil might not be such a bad thing in an ongoing exchange, at least at the outset. We'll see. If you want to read, rather than hear, the first four entries in the exchange, and also the fifth, sixth, and seventh for that matter, you can do either anytime you like via Znet or Meta. And that said, this is Michael Albert, signing off until next time for Revolution Z.